0: Well, good morning again. Thank you for being here today. I want to say hello to all of you who are watching online and on television. For those of you who are in the room, would you please give our online television audience a big hand? If you have a Bible, please open that up to Micah chapter 6, Micah chapter 6. So go to the Old Testament, go toward the end of the Old Testament, and you will see that prophetic book there. I want to encourage everyone to please come out and be a part of the Night of Vision on Wednesday night. Uh, I'm going to be be in this room, uh, free meal. I'm going to be talking about uh, what God is doing among us and where he's leading us in a a major, major thing. I believe the Lord has revealed to us that we need to be about uh, tackling in this next season in the life of our church. So please come and be a part uh, of that night on Wednesday night. Uh, Today we continue with part two in a series that uh, we're in, entitled The Free Methodist Way, where we are looking at what it means to be a free Methodist church, and this series is important because we want to know the values that ground us as a free Methodist church and inform how we are a church that fulfills the Great Commission by living the Great Commandment. That's what we want to do. We want to live the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, so that we can be a part of fulfilling the great commission and making Jesus known all over the earth. Last week, we talked about life-giving holiness and what that means for us as individuals and how we are called to live that out today. We're going to talk about love-driven justice. Love-driven justice. And as I did last week, I'd like to begin by starting and quoting from the Free Methodist Way around this topic of love-driven justice. The Free Methodist Way says this, quote, "'Love is the way we demonstrate God's heart for justice by valuing the image of God in all men, women, and children, acting with compassion toward the oppressed, resisting oppression, and stewarding creation.'" The free Methodist way is not only to realize a better society, watch this, but that all may be reconciled to God and one another in ways that reflect God's just character. I love that. I love that. Our culture in so many ways has hijacked the word or the concept of justice, And whenever people of the world or of our culture talk about justice, many times it's a short, or it's another way of saying punishment, or cancel certain people or certain groups out. But that is not God's kind of justice. The word justice appears 143 times in the Bible, which means it's pretty important to God. And God's kind of justice is totally different than the world's kind of justice, God's kind of justice, we believe as Christians that, that God is in the business of making wrongs right. And God's kind of justice is not just looking to make a wrong right, but make a wrong right in such a way that it leads to reconciliation. Reconciliation, that's why Three Methodist Way says, it's not just about realizing a better society, yes, we want that, but that all may be reconciled to God and one another, in ways that reflect God's just character. While you're holding your place in Micah chapter six, um, if you turn over to Second Corinthians five, Paul tells us that this is the end of uh, the end that we are working toward in our ministry. In 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16, it says, For now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning just who they are as a person outwardly in that sense, in a worldly sense Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That verse that we all love, the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. But listen to verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? He tells us, verse 19, that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is who we are as God's people, this is who we are as followers of Christ. And when it comes to doing works of justice in the world, it is ultimately to the end, not that just something gets punished or someone gets punished, no, but that reconciliation happens between people and God and between people and other people. Now, that may sound like a great concept, but this is grounded all throughout Scripture. And to look at this, I want us to look at it through what was going on in the book of Micah, particularly Micah chapter 6. What we see in the context of the book of Micah is that God is bringing a divine lawsuit. There's legal language used here. A divine lawsuit against his people. We see it in Micah chapter 1 verse 15. We see it in 411. We see it in 5.1. We also see it here in chapter 6, 1 through 8. And at the core of this book, the book of Micah, Uh, We see two major themes taking place. One is the messianic theme of the shepherd king who would come, that Jesus would come. He would, yes, shepherd his people, also rule and reign. But also, we see the theme of what it means to live in the true nature of what we will call a lived out covenant. What does lived out covenant faithfulness actually look like for the people? Now, Micah did ministry for about 20 to 25 years. He was a contemporary with Hosea and Isaiah. uh, And we see that his ministry spanned during the time where the northern part of Israel was taken into Assyrian captivity. We see that in 722 B.C. And so that's when Micah is doing his ministry. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 6, we hear Something very interesting, and Micah uses some interesting language here. In Micah 6, verse 1, it says, hear what the Lord says. So this is from God, not just Micah. Arise, plead your case. Hear the language there? Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. So the language that Micah is using here is that, yes, God is summoning Israel, and the mountains and the hills, they are serving as the symbolic jury against Israel. And so as God brings his case, it's as if all of creation is looking on and looking to Israel in this moment because something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong. Yes, the book of Micah is about the shepherd king who will come, but also it is about the true nature of a lived out covenant, of what covenant faithfulness looks like lived out among the people. In other words, you could put it this way. One of the things that Micah is talking about here is what it means to be a genuine human, to just be a human. What it means to be a genuine human that bears the image of God, sees the image of God in all the people around you and then learns to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what's gone wrong with the people of Israel in their day. Now Micah tells us that one day, one day people will see this. If you go back two chapters to Micah chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 it says this, notice the mountain and hill language here. In Micah chapter four, verse one, it says, it shall come to pass in latter days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it and many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk In his paths. Micah says there's coming a day when this is what it's going to be like for the mountains and the hills to look on and see the nation streaming up to God so that he may teach them and they may walk in his paths. But today that's not the case, Micah says in Micah chapter six. Today that's not the case. The mountains and the hills, they stand as the jury as God is bringing an indictment against his people, which is exactly what verse 2 says. Here, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Right here we see that God is contending with Israel. But notice here this word contention. It means strife. It means there's a dispute. And notice that in this point of contention, you know, many times God uses contention to get our attention. It's exactly what he's doing here. He's trying to get his people to wake up. And so he's pointing out a very major flaw in how they're living out the covenant that he has given to them. So he's going to contend with them and bring an indictment against him. And then we see God's case really has three movements here. We see it in verses three, four, and five. The first movement of God's case we see in verse three. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And then he says, answer me. Give an answer. Now, one scholar pointed out that God's voice here in this text is more of a wounded lover than a vindictive judge. God is heartbroken over what his people are doing, his people's attitude toward him, how they're living out or not living out their faith at this point. But God puts the question before them, what have I done to you? What an amazing question. We live in a world where we have a lot of people who don't even believe in God who like to blame God for a lot of things. And sometimes if we're not careful, we find ourselves in the same place. Although we may believe in God, we're asking God or or accusing God of doing this or that. And God is putting the question before them. He's inviting them to think, to think, and then bring an accusation. Is there anything with which we can blame the Lord? That's what he's putting before them. What have I done? Go ahead. If you're going to make an accusation, you might as well give an answer to the accusation. So what have I done to you? And then he says, how have I wearied you? I like that word, wearied. It means, how have I offended you to the point that you have become impatient with me, God says. What have I done? And then he says, answer me. The word answer there is the same Hebrew word that means to sing. He goes, go ahead. Sing it aloud. You know, if you want to influence culture, you go after the music. He says, go ahead, sing it. Sing it all around. A song is rhythmic. It it can be learned by people in fast ways. It can be sung loudly. It can be sung by most. Some of you don't need to sing if you're like me, just not in public. But he says, sing it. What is it? What is the thing that you want to sing aloud in the streets? What accusations are you making? Go ahead, make them known to others, he says. Make them known to the world. Then the second movement is verse 4. He says, here's what I've done. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Notice he mentions Egypt. And and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God says, this is what I have done. Notice that he refers back to Egypt. You see scripture do that over and over, especially through the Psalms. This is because Egypt is known as the actus primus. It is the supreme act of kindness or grace from God to his people. But in order to get the people out of Egypt, God had to do two things that had to do with redemption. He redeemed them out of the house of slavery. There was divine redemption that took place, but notice that God's divine redemption here God's divine redemption was not just the removal of the bad, slavery, but also the establishment of the people in the land, the blessing. And God is saying, you've forgotten that. The people have forgotten what God has done in delivering them from Egypt, the redemption that they experience. Again, not just removing the negative, but the blessing of the Lord resting upon them. And instead, they're living with a, what have you done for me lately, attitude you ever been there or has it just been me right but that's the mentality that they have and he says remember Egypt first there was divine redemption slavery no more blessing in the promised land but not only that he says I've given you Moses Aaron and Miriam Moses was the one through which the law came to the people of how they were to live their lives in a way that would reflect God's glory and be a light to the nations around them and then Aaron was the one through whom the uh, priesthood came and then Miriam Notice that Miriam is mentioned here. It was through Moses that the law came to the people. It was through Aaron, uh, Aaron that the people got the priesthood, but it was through Miriam that the people got the song of the Exodus. The song of the Exodus. Miriam, her name means wished for child. And Israel was the wished for child for God. But in Exodus 15, we see after God delivered the people of Israel through the Red Sea, they get to the other side. In Exodus 15, it says this, verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess The sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, oh Lord. Verse 21, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Miriam went out with a tambourine and uh, other women with her, leading the people in worship because of what God has done in this moment, getting them through the Red Sea on their way to the promised land. It's as if God was saying to them, remember what he said in verse 3, answer me, sing it aloud. It's as if God was saying to, to them, you once sang because I set you free. Now you sing because you want to be me. You once were singing about what I have done for you. Now, all you're doing is singing your accusations against me. And again, he's asking for them. What are they? What are they to the people? The first movement that we see here, God, again, wounded lover in voice, is saying, What have I done? What have I done? He says, I will tell you. Remember Egypt? Remember the divine redemption? Remember the divine leadership? Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, that I gave to you as you were coming out. And then the third movement we see in verse 5. Micah 6, verse 5 says, O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Siddam to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He says, remember what happened with Balaam? When Balaam was only allowed to bless the people of Israel when others wanted him to curse the people of Israel. And it's if God is saying to them, do you remember how I sustain you and hold you together? Do you remember how I hold back the curses of others and I protect you? And then he says, remember what happened from Sidom to Gilgal? Sidom was the last city that the people of Israel were in before crossing the Jordan River. Gilgal was the first city they entered after crossing the Jordan River. He says, remember what happened in between those two cities? Remember how I not only parted the Red Sea, remember how it was also the Jordan River that flowed in a different direction and you walked through on dry ground? He says, have you forgotten your own story? Have you forgotten what I've done all the way back to Egypt? The redemption from slavery, the divine leadership I provided. Do you remember what happened as you were standing there on the shores of the Jordan, looking across, saying, how in the world am I going to get cross? And Do you remember what I did for you there as you walked into Gilgal, He says, I want you to remember these things, verse 5, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord, that you may see them, that you may notice them, that you may drag those actions of the past into the present so that you can understand who I am, he says. And then we get Israel's response, verses 6 and 7. What shall I, with what shall I come before the Lord? I bow myself before God on high, the people say in response. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Notice the exaggerated language of the people. Shall I give this 10,000 rivers of all, thousands of rams? When is the Lord ever going to be pleased with us? Do you see that exaggerated language? See, Israel has lost sight of who God has been for them. And when selfish people don't get their way, they begin to exaggerate. It's amazing how we as adults can turn into toddlers and cry foul when we forget how blessed we are. Mm -mm. God is wanting them to get their eyes off themselves long enough to see the injustice around them and even the injustice that has come at their hands. Notice the language of the people. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? God's saying, no, I'll do that. I'll do that. So Israel's course correction is given in verse 8. Here's what God requires. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness. Some of your translations say mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Micah delivers this word to the people that this is what God wants, to do justice, to act in just and fair ways towards others, to love kindness or mercy. Love is shown. Love is an action. It's not just a feeling. So to show kindness, to show mercy to others, and to walk humbly with your God. Remember who God is in the relationship. I would contend that when you see God as God, it humbles you, and when you walk humbly with him, you will live out and do acts of kindness and mercy, and that will lead you to doing justice. But all of us sit here today, and we have all these definitions flying through our head from the media about what justice is and what it is not. Again, according to Scripture, justice is something that is very close to the heart of God. Not only is it mentioned 143 times, 25 times throughout Scripture, we are told to do justice. But what does that mean? To do justice is to see a need. To see the broken places in the world. And to be willing to be a part of meeting that need. To be a part of being the solution to that brokenness. Over the long haul. That's what it means to do justice, to see a need, to see the brokenness of the world, to be willing to be a part of the solution to that brokenness, to that need, and to do that over the long haul, over an extended period of time. This is not just a random act of kindness, this is something so much more. And we do justice in so many different and beautiful ways. We as the people of God are called to open our eyes and see the brokenness around us, to see the needs around us. And whenever we see them, we cannot just close our eyes and hide from them. We cannot just build boxes to live in and then put fences around those boxes and then put fences around the fences of the boxes and stay there. Those are called neighborhoods, by the way. God calls us as the people of God to do something about it, to see the brokenness of the world, be willing to be a part of it. I told you before, I love the word compassion. It's a compound Latin word, cum patai. it means to suffer with. I have to get in there with them over the long haul because to the end that people experience reconciliation with God and with others. That's the goal. That's the goal. The goal of justice is not to punish someone. It's to see them reconciled to God and reconciled in the broken relationships in their lives. We do that in so many ways here. So many ways. I want you to hear a testimony of one example of how this is played out in one person's life in the realm of foster care. Turn your attention to the screen just for a moment, please.
1: When uh, the Lord begins working in your life and moving in compassion towards you and grace for you, all of a sudden you have that for others and you want to share it and give it away. I feel only called to move towards compassion for other people and into other people's life and show mercy and grace in the exact same ways I've been shown mercy and grace. First John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We don't love for any other reason other than Jesus came to save us from our own sins and live with us forever. And we want to give that away. I ask the Lord that really scary question to break my heart for what breaks his, and he did. He broke my heart for the kids in our city, the um, the injustices in our city, the unfairness in our city. Um, he showed me what all I had been blessed with and how much I had to give, really. We had um, lots of Fraser members that were involved in foster care, and it never felt like this crazy far off thing to do to me. It is a long journey to become a foster parent. Um, for me, it started with classes at DHR every Tuesday night from 5:30 to 8 p.m. for 10 weeks, and then we have water safety certification, CPR certification, a home study, a second home study, a physical, and then you get that magical phone call of, oh, you've been approved, and not five minutes later, they have a child for you because. The crisis is a crisis. And I I think mine was about two hours from first phone call of license to, hey, we have a child for you. Our hearts are moved by our love. Our hearts are moved by our compassion, and when the Lord gives you um, all of those things, you just wanna extend it. And I see the injustices in the city, and I want to fix them. I can't fix every single one of them, but I do know that as image bearers of Christ step into those places, we're bringing the light with us, and we're dragging those places into the light. And I want as much of those injustices to be filled with light it doesn't make any sense it makes no sense to open your home spend your money spend your time your days your energy your emotional well-being on a child that doesn't belong to you but when you lift your eyes up and you focus them on christ it makes all the sense in the world you do it anyways and what i've learned is that dependency on christ is the only way to live when you are filled with the Holy Spirit and constantly asking the Lord for wisdom and discernment and strength and grace to get through each and every day, that's a really good place to be. Hmm.
0: Yeah. It's the natural question at this point of the day as we begin to transition our minds toward lunch. Is where is God calling you to do justice? To seek the end of reconciliation over the long haul. I want to ask everybody, hang with me just for a moment here. Where is that? You see, the last two years have been hard. It's two and a half, three years that we've been in this pandemic. But to the Christians in the room and online, I would say this. We have to be careful that we do not let our faith stay dormant for too long. If we're being honest, we've had a lot of excuses to not do some things, right? But we have to be careful that we do not let our faith stay dormant too long because dormant faith becomes dead faith. That's why Ephesians 4.14, the calling there where it says, Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper. In many ways, it's time for us to wake up And see that to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly before the Lord. Notice it says, what does the Lord require of you? Not you get to pick one of the three options. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You say, what does it mean that my righteousness not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? I'll let Jesus answer it for Matthew 23, 23. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, religious people, smart people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice justice. And mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus there quoting Micah 6.8. So a way I could put the question before you this morning is, how is God calling you to live the weightier matters the things in life that require more than just momentary interactions or showing up? How is God calling you to do justice, to seek reconciliation over the long haul because your heart is breaking for brokenness that you see in the world? Where is that for you? And if we don't see it, we have to start asking ourselves, Christians, We have to start asking ourselves, if God's heart breaks for these kinds of things and my heart's not breaking for those kinds of things, what is the state of my heart? And we have to say, God, would you bring us back to that place where we wake up, we arise from the dead, let your sun shine on us, that we may see the world the way you see the world, even the brokenness of it, that we may enter into it and be agents of justice that leads to reconciliation. My prayers is that we would pray that kind of prayer. That we would be that kind of church. That we would truly be a light to those around us. And let us not just do that by saying, yes, I agree. Mentally agree. Let us do that by saying, God, where are you sending me? So, Father, where are you sending me? Where are you sending my brothers and sisters sitting in this room, my brothers and sisters watching online on television right now? Where is that? You have required something of us, and we believe that in your power, the power of the Holy Spirit, you will help us see brokenness and needs around us. You will help us step into that brokenness. And be a part of the solution for those needs and to do that over the long haul that people may be reconciled to you and one another and that you may receive glory. So Lord, we ask that you would inspire our minds to that end. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be so.